please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Not exactly a standard resurrection passage. Colossians chapter 2. However, Paul in Colossians 2 appeals to the resurrection in a way that I would like to highlight this morning. The Christian faith tradition does not have many holidays. The essence of Christianity, in fact, is not only that we hold the world loosely, but even in a sense that we hold religion loosely. We regard religion as a means to an end, as the vehicle that propels worship and guides us into the established truths of the Word of God. To this end, while the church is always called to seek unity, it's not necessarily always called to seek consensus, to to be always looking the same. We've studied before at various times and in various contexts about the reality of our liberty in Christ and of what this liberty means for us as believers. It means we won't always all look the same or act the same or even think the same, but we will all operate led by the Holy Spirit with a common foundation of truths. And there is no truth more foundational, more common, more essential than the finished work and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God from the dead. This is not just the essence of our faith, it is the power of our faith. It is the gospel, which a man must believe in order to be saved from his sin and redeemed from eternal separation from God. To this end, the observance of the resurrection on the first day of the week following Passover is about the closest thing that the church has to a fully unified observance. This is a day of celebration. It is a day where we call one another to rejoice as brothers and sisters in Christ, for our sins have been forgiven, death has been defeated, joy has been purchased. Our Creator and our God, He loves us. And He has proved that through His Son. Today we're going to walk through Colossians chapters 2 and 3, which speak to the reality of the Christian life as impacted by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 of Colossians focuses primarily upon the privileges and the blessings found through Christ's death. That positionally we are blessed in Christ through His resurrection. We are reconciled unto God, cleansed unto future perfection and glory. But Paul describes as well his concern, beginning in chapter 2, for those, including the men and women of the church of Colossae, who had never met him personally and so did not have the advantage of his personal teaching on these issues. We all understand that there's a dramatic difference between being taught by proxy or a a, a long distance by letter in our age today, perhaps over the internet, um, podcast or YouTube, and, and the difference between being taught that way and being taught in person. The problem with an impersonal minister, there are several problems with the impersonal minister. First is the the validation of the person himself. You don't really know the minister if all you've ever done is uh, see him in a letter or, or, or watch him on television or on the internet or hear his voice on the internet. You don't know the fruit of a minister's life. That's important unto credibility. And Paul desired that they would not 
be swayed because they had not met Paul, because they did not know his credibility, they did not know his love for them, into allowing other truth claims to compete with the truth claims of Christ. So too it is with Paul and Colossae. Paul mentions the churches of Laodicea as well in this state. They had never met Paul personally. And this is where we pick up today. Colossians chapter 2, we pick up in verses 4 and 5 where the Bible says this, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. We jump into the context in which I described. Paul has voiced his concern regarding those who had not met him in person, namely because he is afraid that because they have not met him in person, they don't know his passion, his, his, his authority even in Christ uh, in person, that they would be beguiled by enticing words, that they would be beguiled by those who would seek to convince them of other truths that are opposite or contrary to the truths of Christ. Things which sound good, but are wrong. You know, we live in a world full of ideas which sound good. Ideas which are proposed with every right intention. Ideas which have seemingly noble ends. In fact, they have everything going for them, except truth. They are great in every respect, except they're false. And so Paul tells them, though he had never met them, that he is with them in spirit, that he has taught them through his letters. And as they order themselves with obedience and steadfastness, Paul sees his teaching and their actions, and he rejoices in that. And this is not just Paul trying to build up the church in his own image. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a representative of Christ on the earth to the early church. To that end, as Paul built them up in his doctrine, he was seeking to build them up in Christ's doctrine. And in reality, any good minister should be living in such a manner and teaching in such a manner that his goal is to have others follow him as he follows Christ. This was Paul's goal. And Paul was rejoicing to see their steadfastness in Christ. So he continues in verse 6, and the Bible says this, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. As ye have received him, so walk ye in him. Notice that Paul does not take it for granted that everyone who has received the Lord will by default also successfully walk in Christ's footsteps. There's a difference between accepting Christ as your Savior and living Christ-likeness. Accepting Christ is a one-time decision whereby we receive the Spirit of God. We're translated from darkness into light. We've been given a new identity in Christ. We are sealed until the day of Christ. We are given a new nature. But none of that, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, means the old nature goes away. None of this means that we fundamentally lack the capacity to choose to walk in the flesh which is why the majority of the epistles are dedicated to teaching us how to walk in Christ, exhorting us to do exactly that. And that is actually what we're going to come to in a little bit. The question is, what does it mean to walk in Christ? When we consider the resurrection, as we've sung this morning that He is risen in any number of ways, our theme has been, been pretty focused this morning, as it ought to be. As we have received Christ... 
as we stand together and declare that he is risen, so walk ye in him. What does it mean, though, to walk in Christ? We'll come to that in just a little bit. But first, we consider the motivation and the power through which we walk in Christ. Paul continues in verse 7. He says, Rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Paul pictures the essence of the Christian life as effectively a plant that needs to be rooted and grown. First, rooted. The root system of a plant is that which gives the plant its strength and stability. We see giant trees, and it's been pretty windy uh, here the last couple of days. And as these giant trees, they're like big sails, right? Uh, up there, uh, some 15, 20, 30 feet. And as they're just reaching up into the sky, these winds come by. There's a great amount of force pushing against those trees. What is it that keeps that tree from being pulled over? Well, it's their root system. We see these giant trees withstand great winds. And the trees that fall are those whose roots simply were not deep enough or strong enough to hold the rest of the tree against the conditions that befell it. Paul states that the very foundation of our lives needs to be rooted, reformed by the principles of Jesus Christ. As we sing of the resurrection, as we sing of what the resurrection means, as we consider that we are alive in Christ, buried with Him by baptism into death, and raised to walk in newness of life. Are you rooted this morning in Christ? It's not enough for our actions to change. It's not enough for us to tack Jesus already onto a mindset that we have. We are to be rooted in Christ. He has to become the very foundation, the very fiber of our being, the very motivation for what we do, why we do what we do, why we don't do what we do. If the answer is not Christ, then we need to begin to wonder if we are truly rooted in Him. Church is a motivator. It's a pretty good one. Family is a motivator. It's a pretty good one. Society is a motivator. It can be a good one too. A spouse or a child, it, it can be a good motivation. But the roots of the Christian life are not intended to be planted in your family or in your church or in your society, in husband, in wife, in child, in parent. The roots of the Christian life are planted in Christ and Christ alone, secured by His sacrifice. So we are rooted in Christ. Then Paul says, and be, uh, and be built up in him, established in the faith. Christ is the foundational motivation. And then everything that we build onto our lives from there should be built upon that foundation. We build. We build the doctrines of Jesus Christ. We build the truths of, of the word of God. And Paul says that we do so being taught by the Word of God and continuing, abounding therein with thanksgiving. You're planted, you're growing, planted in Christ, growing in Christ, and abounding with thanksgiving. Is that you this morning? Is that the reality of your life this morning? If not, why not? If Jesus died on the cross for you, which He did, 
if he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death in the grave, which he did, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, I hope you have. If you have not, today would be a great day to do that. You're founded on him. Does it drive your thinking? Does it drive your actions? Pastor, what does it mean though? Walk in Christ. Be built up in Christ. Be established in the faith. What does it mean? We're coming to it. Not quite ready yet. So we continue with Paul's warning, verse 8. Beware, he says, lest any man spoil you. That doesn't mean like when you open the fridge and you smell something off. Not that kind of spoiling. It's not the spoiling like of food. It's the spoiling like of war. Somebody goes to war and they come back with the spoils of war. They have taken captive those things that they had won by war. To carry off captive is literally what that word means. Beware lest any man carry you off, captivate you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. There's a great deal of this world that wants to tell you that Christ has not died for your sins, that Christ has not risen from the dead, that there is no power. There's a great deal of the Christian world that is not living in the power of the resurrection because they have been carried captive by the philosophies of this world, because they have accepted Christ as their Savior, but then the philosophies of this world, they are rooted to some degree in Christ, but their mind never transitioned. They are not built up and established in Him. We're going to talk about this more in just a moment. Paul warns that if we are not rooted and built up in Christ, then something else will take that place. Some philosophy of vain deceit, of empty deception. The traditions of men which are rooted in the thinking of this world rather than the thinking of Christ. We already mentioned the many ideas in this world that are great, except they just aren't true. Take careful note of what the scriptures are saying here. There are many philosophies in this world. Everything has an ism. And these isms are around us every day. These isms are, complete, are, are competing truth claims, competing for your loyalty, for your thought processes every day. Big, common the, the common philosophies that we're dealing with today. Materialism states that, the ma that matter is the fundamental substance of nature, that all things are the result of material interactions, that nothing is not material, if you'll pardon the double negative. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing supernatural. Pragmatism is a philosophy that my decisions should be based more upon practical effect than principle, more upon results than truths. That the end justifies the means. Relativism denies the idea of any universal truth because everything that I understand about the world is conditioned upon my perception of the world. Therefore, everything is relative. Therefore, I cannot say that something is true for you because I'm not in your shoes. I can't see the world through your lenses. I haven't had your experiences. And as my perceptions change, so too do my truths. To this end, I'm not able to ever say that anything is absolutely true or absolutely false because all things are relative to my perspective. Feminism. A philosophy in today's society that states there is no difference at all between men and women, and so that genders should not be treated as equals, just equals, but also they should be treated as interchangeables. It's a subset of egalitarianism. 
which deals in the realm of equality of worth and social status among, among subsets of people. I give you these five of hundreds of isms, philosophies floating around. When you turn on the news, when you read a textbook, when you browse internet publications, when you turn on the television, when you get into debates with your friends on politics or policies or ideology or morality or religion, everyone has an underlying ism, a philosophy that is driving their thinking on these things. And these underlying philosophies for the past several thousand years have informed various people's perceptions, decisions, and desires. So what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, is that the believer's philosophical foundation is Christ. So that when we are asked about anything in society, morality, politics, philosophy, ideology, how people should treat each other, our philosophies about equality and equity, our understanding of human rights, name it. The foundation of our thinking should not be a philosopher, Aristotle, Plato, or Epicurus, or Kant, or Nietzsche. The foundation should be Christ, unapologetically Christ. When someone says, what do you believe? Don't feel bad about turning to a Bible verse rather than turning to the works of Plato. When someone says, what is your philosophy? Don't feel bad about turning to a Bible verse rather than turning to the writings of Immanuel Kant. That's not a deficiency if you turn to a Bible verse. That, that's a strength. And then building our thoughts upon Christ first, we grow in our understanding of the world around us by relating everything in this world to Christ. We build our lives not on the merging of traditions and philosophies with the doctrines of Christ, but rather we build ourselves up in the doctrines of Christ and then anywhere where philosophy might merge with Christ, we say, okay, that, that part's fine. Jesus did not intend to become a part of our lives. He did not die on the cross. He was not buried and rose victori victor victoriously from the grave so that we could tack him onto our philosophical ideas. Jesus died to consume our lives, to overshadow everything else in our life. And so Paul warns the church here of something that our church today struggles with greatly, doesn't it? Not explicitly our church, but the church at large. We've allowed every philosophy to have its day in doctrine and in practice. We've allowed the ideas of the world to compete on the same level with the doctrines of Christ for our loyalty and our attention. And in doing so, the church has been plundered, spoiled, captivated. We've been carried off into the world because we've sought to merge the thinking of the world with the doctrines of Christ. And this is the warning. Don't let any man tear you away from the truths of Christ. The foundational truth being the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. God's son. Don't allow the philosophies of this world to have equal standing with the word of God in your mind. Don't allow it to happen. Don't allow the traditions of men to exist on the same level as the doctrines of the scriptures. And this sounds arrogant, doesn't it? Close-minded will be a word you'll hear often. That when someone comes up to me asking me to consider a different philosophy, I say back to them, look, I just don't care what someone else thinks. I care what the Bible says. And they say, well, you're just closed-minded. You don't consider anything. You just have this, this single road. Yeah, it's called the narrow road. 
It, it, is, it, is, it is very narrow. That, mm-hmm. the, the gate is straight. You're right. The way, the way is narrow. And this is what it seems, but it's not the reality of the situation. And let me give you an illustration to kind of let you know why when people call us that, it's not really true. A cartographer is a person who makes maps. Throughout time, there have been many men who, based upon exploration and careful study, have sought to define the world as we know it. In 150 AD, it's about 100 years after Christ died, a little bit more than that, Ptolemy created a map of the world as he knew it. It's kind of hard to see there because of the nature of it, but it was pretty good carving out what we now call Europe. You can see Spain there. There's Italy. Uh, he struggled a little bit with Great Britain. Uh, he uh, got Egypt here, and, and there's uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and, and what we now have is Iraq, Iran, Turkey, such. He was pretty far off on the Persian Gulf. Africa seems to have remained mostly a mystery to him. It's just kind of a blob there, down there at the bottom. But he did pretty well with what he knew. Fast forward 1,500 years. Batista had Nisi's map in 1544. Things began to take more shape. He still didn't really have a good idea about what was going on in North America. North America was a bit of a struggle to him. Looks more like a whale uh, there. But he did pretty good with Africa. Uh, South America's looking pretty good. Um, uh, India's an island, uh, so that's, that's not real good. The Caspian Sea is... is, is kind of shaped strangely, but he, he got a lot better. I mean, that's 1,500 years of, of, of academia and, and, and research and, and exploration. Did a lot better there. 50 years after that, things got even more correct. We have Antarctica in this map. We have Australia down there kind of hiding on the left side. We see India is no longer an island at this point. The Philippines still aren't very defined. Chinese coast and Japan aren't looking very good, and the West... Western Canada kind of looks like it has a tumor, but it's getting better. It's getting better. A hundred years later, better still. At this point, they weren't even really trying with Alaska. And it looks like California was actually separated from the rest of the United States. That's kind of good. (laughs) Things were looking pretty good at this point, though. Fifty years after that, Alaska is still a bit of a mystery, looking better. Now, as people explored, they they drew small areas of the world as they measured scale. People began to have more of an idea of what the world looked like, but it was still marred with a lack of information, a general inability to see the big picture. There are many things on maps such as this that are correct, right? There are many things on these maps, going all the way back to 150 with Ptolemy, that are correct, But there are many things that aren't correct simply because they didn't have enough information. They didn't have perspective. By 1910, things were looking pretty good. Still some problems with scale, especially as you get towards the poles. That's pretty normal for maps. But things were looking pretty good by 1910. Then something happened which changed everything. We got beyond even photographs from the sky, and we made it to satellite imagery. And once we hit the age of the satellite, what we find is that we're no longer looking at artist renditions 
of the world based upon exploration, we're looking at photographic evidence, obviously spliced together over time, right? Photographic evidence. It's no longer based upon the small drawings of explorers. It's no longer even based upon airplanes which flew up and down coastlines. The satellite is above the earth, taking pictures of the earth, showing us real contour, real scale, showing us reality. This is the Bible. You get into a conversation with someone about life, about morality, about philosophy, and they say, well, you, you're, you're, you're throwing out all of the wisdom of, of the last 2,000 years of history to trust this book. And they pull out their map. Maybe that map is humanism. Maybe that map is materialism. Maybe that map is pragmatism. Maybe it's a mixture of all of these. And they show you their map and they say, see, look at the map. And some of these maps are more accurate than others. And you can look and you can say, yep, I agree with that on the map. And I agree with that on the map. Some of these maps aren't even looking at the same planet. There's nothing on the map that makes any sense at all. And you have in your hand the satellite images. They're not drawings. They're not opinions. You have the map as, as given by the one who created it. You have the instruction manual by the manufacturer, not some guy's opinion who has used the product once on the internet. And you tell someone what Australia looks like and how it's positioned relative to Africa, and they say, sure, on your map, but according to my map, Australia's floating out there in the middle of nowhere. Now, my map says Australia's here, and your map says Australia's there. Who are you to say that your map is better than my map? Well, because my map isn't a drawing, it's a photograph. This is the way the world is actually composed. It was created by the creator. Well, sure, but you need to get other people's opinions too. Who are you to say that my map isn't as good as your map? Well, because my map is actual images and yours is a drawing based upon exploration. Well, you're just being close-minded. You really think your map has all the answers, don't you? When there are so many smart people in the world using different maps. And every year, all those smart people, they come together and they merge their maps. And they argue over whose map is right, and then they start to compromise. Well, yep, I can see how your map would be right there. I've experienced that before, so I'm going to put that on my map. And we come together and we each make our maps better. But you refuse to come and merge your map. You, every time you come to one of those meetings, you just say, make your map look like my map. You won't merge your map with my map. You won't take my map and take my, uh, my, my map's perception and add it to your map. Well, that's because my map is photographs. It, it's accurate. I don't need to merge my map with the thinking of other people's maps because my map is a photograph. My map is not just ideas. My map is factual. It contains pictures. It comes in clearer. It's a clearer perspective. Well, you're a bigot. You're closed-minded. You're judging my map, and that means you're judging me. And now I'm going to make sure your map is banned. Banned from everything. 
banned from schools, banned from life, banned from courts, banned from government. Because you won't accept my map. Therefore, your map is no good to me because you think your map is the only map. Well, it just so happens my map is accurate. This is Paul's warning in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. So some Christians start feeling bad because other people's maps feel rejected. And they start to say, well, maybe I can add your map to my map and we can bring your map in and we can make Australia a blob in the middle of the ocean again. That's okay. And we'll, we'll, we'll give Canada a tumor again. That's okay. But I'm not, I'm not missing the core. We're going to keep the core of the map. We'll just start fiddling with the fringes. So the core stays the same and the fringes change. But then now we've created precedent for our map to change. And now every year when we come to them, they say, you need to make your map look more like my map. And each year, the church gives them a little bit more. A little bit more until... Our map now looks like 150 A.D. Ptolemy instead of satellite imagery. And the church has been spoiled, led captive by philosophy and vain deceit. And this is the warning. The warning is that we don't need another map. Why? Verses 9 and 10. For in him, that's Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You don't need the philosophies of this world to complete anything within you. Because within Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so as we are in Christ, we are complete in him. Now, this does not mean that we do not need anything in the material existence, right? Right? We're, we're still material people. We need food to live. We need shelter. We have emotional and physical needs that are met by the things in this world. But Christ is above the philosophies of this world. All the motivations of this world are subservient to that of Christ because we are complete in Him. And the question is this. What is it that fulfills you? Pastor, what does this have to do with the resurrection? We're getting there. What is it that fulfills you? And this is a tough question, so guard your toes for a few moments. Stepping on your toes, that's what I mean by that. For, my, for the little kids. My little, little literalists, I love them. There are, unnat- there are many natural things in this life which fulfill. Some biblical, some unbiblical. Men are fulfilled by work. They're fulfilled by achievement. They're fulfilled by taking care of their family. This is a natural, a common grace, if you will. It's a good thing. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 tells us if a man does not work, he should not eat. Man finds fulfillment in work as he should. But the believer's fulfillment should run deeper than work. It should not be the work itself which fulfills, but work done Christ's way. That whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. That we are to be submissive to our masters as unto the Lord. Fulfillment should come not just from a job done, not even just from a job well done, but rather from a job done in Christ, because Christ is our fulfillment. We are complete in Christ. 
Which is why the Christian can be content even when things aren't great. Women are fulfilled by motherhood, raising children, keeping a home. These are good things. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 tell us that women ought to love their husbands, to love their children, to be keepers at home. These are things that women often find fulfillment in. But the believing woman's fulfillment should go deeper than just that. It should not be motherhood itself which is your fulfillment, but motherhood as unto Christ. Indeed, 1 Timothy chapter 2 reminds us that women are saved in childbearing, the Bible says, if they continue in steadfastness and in the faith. Who's they? The children. That the mother's joy, that the mother's fulfillment is found when their children grow up to walk in Christ, to love the Lord. The ideals of the biblical family. Many in this world find their fulfillment even outside of Christ, in jobs and in family, they have a pretty good map. That map is showing them that family is important. That map is showing them that, uh, that, that a, a job is good, that taking care of a family will fulfill them, that, that loving their children will fulfill them, that loving their spouse will fulfill them. That's good. That's a good map in that particular area of life. An ever-growing number in our society have a really bad map today. We are in an existential crisis in this country of young people not growing up and taking responsibility. We are in a crisis of young men seeking all of their fulfillment living vicariously through digital screens. So a young man who is built by God to fulfill and to achieve can build an entire city in 100 hours or can slay thousands of people without even stepping off the couch. And at the end of the time, everything that he's achieved is in his mind, but nothing in reality. He's learned nothing. He's achieved nothing, though he feels like he has. He is seeking the same fulfillment of achievement, of doing, because that's what men do. But it's all a lie. It's all fake. We have a large number of young women seeking their fulfillment in a misguided understanding of femininity. Either they pursue the attentions of men in inappropriate ways, and so men treat them as if they're a piece of meat, or they pursue the rejection of femininity, claiming that femininity is the problem, that motherhood is the problem, that families are the problem in an attempt to achieve some sort of parity with men in society and to achieve respect in the absolute wrong way. Both are rampant in our society today. And their map looks nothing like our map. Nothing like our map. What am I saying here? Whether a person's map is close to our map or nothing like our map, we have the map. We are complete in Christ. Our fulfillment is not that, the, that, that we have found the same thing the world has found, that, that a man's fulfillment comes through job and family, marriage, that a woman's fulfillment comes through raising a family and having a husband. and Those, those are good things. But if, if that's where our fulfillment lies, we've taken somebody else's map and we've borrowed from it. 
Because in this map, our fulfillment comes through Christ. And as we align with Christ, those things are going to be there. But that's not where our fulfillment lies. That's not where our fulfillment lies. Our fulfillment lies in Christ. It is good, men, that you should want to work and provide for your family. It's good, but it shouldn't be enough for you. That shouldn't be what fully fulfills you, except to the degree that what you are doing, you are doing as unto the Lord, and the Lord is pleased. And if the Lord is not pleased, even if you're working, have you ever been there, men? Where you just realize, you know, you're, you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do, you're working a job, but you, you know that Christ is moving you on, that God is moving you to the next job, that God is moving you to the next step. And there's, even though you're still bringing home the bacon, metaphorically or literally, you're still not fully content because you're not fully fulfilled until you are where Christ wants you. Wife, you're doing everything that you're supposed to do as a family, but you're still not fully content until your family is what Christ wants it to be. That's our map. Complete in Christ. Because Christ is our head, and we are complete in Him. Paul continues in verses 11 and 12. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein... Also, here it is, ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. You are a Christian. You are set apart unto Christ. You're not set apart unto a job. You're not set apart unto a social standing. You're not set apart unto an ethnicity. You're not set apart unto a country. You're not set apart unto a philosophy. You are set apart unto Christ, freed from sin, buried with Christ through spiritual baptism at the moment of salvation, and raised again with Christ to walk in newness of life. We have faith in the power of God to destroy the power of sin over our lives, to make us new creations, to renew our minds, fitted to serve Christ and enabled to do so through His great power. And this is where the memorial of this day meets us head on. When we consider the resurrection from the dead, when we consider the power of Christ which works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure, when we consider the destruction of the power of death and of hell over us, when we consider the victory over sin which is achieved through the empty tomb, we are reminded that this world is not our home. This world is not our home that we have already been raised to walk in newness of life, that our bodies can be quickened with our spirits to serve the true and living God, that our purpose is beyond that of just this earth, that our joy is beyond the circumstances that surround us, that our fulfillment rests beyond the philosophies of this life and merges in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. And that's what this day is about. It is a day not only to remember the victory of Christ in the empty tomb, but to glory in the victory of Christ in the empty tomb. Because for all who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior today, Christ's victory then is your victory now. Christ's power then is your power today. 
The empty tomb is a reminder that the world is not your home. The empty tomb is a reminder that the philosophies of this world are but a shadow of the fullness of the knowledge that we have in Christ. The empty tomb is a testimony of the inferiority of this world, of its priorities and its solutions to everything that is in Christ. And we know this to be true because God tells us it's true and we believe it's true because we love him. Now, I'm going to walk through the rest of this chapter very briefly so that we can get where we're going today. Verses 13 through 15, the Bible says this, And you, being dead in your sins and and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, made alive, together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That's the resurrection. We died with Christ. We are risen with Christ. Christ spoiled. He he took captive the attempts of the enemy to destroy us and triumphed over them openly. For all to see, the empty tomb is the testimony of Christ's triumph over this world. Verses 16 through 23. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, a holiday, uh, or of a new moon or of the, the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in, vo- uh, in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind, and not holding the head not elevating Christ, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom, They've got a little bit of the map in will, worship, and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Paul says, why then? Why, if Christ has triumphed over the world, do we borrow their maps? Do we live according to their maps? Don't be fooled, Paul says, by those who would seek to impose upon you some sort of earthly tradition, which may reflect truth, but is not Christ. The power of the resurrection in you and through you is greater than the traditions of men. Don't be fooled by those who would use biblical morality to prop up humanistic ideals, attempting to separate the morality from Christ. Don't be fooled. The power of the resurrection in in you through Christ is greater than just morality. Don't be led astray by the doctrines of men, knowing that you are dead with Christ from the philosophies of this world, having been given a clearer map of how the world truly works. These things, Paul says, have a show of wisdom and humility in denial of the flesh. Humility and denial of the flesh are good things. And often the traditions of men will reflect some level of humility and denial of the flesh through morality. That's a good thing. They've got a portion of the map. Good for them. But don't think that because they have a portion of the map, their map is the true map. Stick to the map. Stick to Christ. 
Remember back at the beginning of the message, we read Paul's call to walk in Christ and we asked, what does it mean? Well, now we're there. The power to do so is the resurrection. What does it mean to walk in Christ? Verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, that's what we sung today, he is risen. Because he is risen, we are risen with him. We will rise one day. We will be free from this mortal body. We will be given a resurrected body. He claimed power over sin. We have power over sin. If that is you today, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Not the things of this earth. Not the maps of this earth. Seek the things which are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God, buried with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. If you are risen with Christ, if you are delivered from this world, if Christ's death did indeed overcome the world, if he openly triumphed over them through the resurrection, and we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, don't let this world become too important to you. Don't let your affections rest upon this world when your life is hid with Christ in God. The resurrection represents Christ's victory over death and our victory over death. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, as we sang this morning, death has no sting. But the resurrection also represents Christ's victory over sin. And so our victory over sin. Romans 6, 12, we talked about it in Sunday school. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Are you living this way today? Has the mind of Christ so filled your existence, being rooted and built up in him, that you have learned to reject the lies of this world around us and cling to the truths of Christ? Or is your map a merging of biblical truth with material truth, with humanistic truth, with pragmatic truth? What will this look like when we have set our affections on things above? Verses 5 through 14. Mortify, kill, therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, the desires for the things of this world, for the things of the flesh, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, when ye lived according to that map, when you just had that map, those things were a part of the map. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which was renewed in, the no in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Jew Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Put off all these things. Put off your anger. Put off your malice. Put off your lying. 
because you've put off the old man. And put on instead, therefore, verse 12 and following, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Paul gives us a great number of attributes, and he calls charity, love, the glue that holds it all together, the bond of perfection. Now we've talked about philosophies, and we've talked about maps. We've talked about the resurrection. We've sung about the resurrection. We'll sing about it more. This is where it's all going. If Christ died on the cross and he has risen, if he has made an open show of the world, if he has proven himself superior in your heart to the things of this world, and the resurrection proves that, that Christ is superior, this is what it should look like in your heart. This is what the superiority of Christ in your heart should look like. It should look like kindness and humility and meekness, strength under control. It should look like patience, long-suffering. It should look like forbearance. It should look like forgiveness. It should look like love. This is what the resurrection should look like today in this body. This is what Christ's power over sin and death and the vain philosophies of this world should look like today in us. This is the true map. We see the world as it truly exists. Call it arrogant, call it whatever we want, whatever we want to call it. We see the world as it truly exists because the unbelieving man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. Because we have the map, and the Spirit of God, if you're in Christ, has taught you how to read the map. We know things as they are in a way the unbeliever simply cannot. And we know that true fulfillment, true completeness of life, not only in this life, but the life that is to come, is as we live as those who are risen with Christ. It isn't what the world around us teaches. It isn't what the world around us will understand. You can't sit down with an unbeliever over coffee and explain this and they say, yeah, that makes sense. Unless they come to Christ. Then it'll make sense. It isn't what the world around us likes. But it is God's way. Established through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And empowered in you through that resurrection. And if it's God's way, there can be no better way. How are you doing today? On this Resurrection Sunday, are you, are you a living testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's the question. We have testified in word that Christ is risen. Are we testifying in life that Christ is risen? Is this map our map? Are you experiencing the victory 
of Christ's resurrection in your life? Are you living in the joy of that victory? Or have you been duped by the world? Have you been spoiled, carried captive by the philosophies of the world? You look at their maps and you say, those maps look pretty good to me. So you start to live by some of that map. You can do that, but don't be surprised when you drive right into an ocean because you're following the wrong map. Where do your priorities lie? Where do your affections rest? Are you living with your mind and your heart firmly rooted in the power and the purpose of the resurrection? Or are you being among those who have received Christ, failing to walk in Him? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.